Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Just Riding Along on Mountain Bike Radio. Hello and welcome to a special, I guess, kind of Just Riding Along, maybe Mountain Bike Radio and, I don't know, we're going to leave that up to Ben. But we have a very special guest in the house with us tonight. He is currently employed by SRAM, but he is not here for SRAM. He's on vacation, so you can't hold this against him. You can't say that he is the one that did this. What? <laughs> this is Troy. Greetings and salutations. And we met Troy when Matt Matt and I went to SRAM Technical University last January and met Troy there. And basically within the first hour of being there, I kind of elbowed Matt in the ribs and showed him a note I'd written that just said we have to interview him for Mountain Bike Radio. <laughs> like we we just have to. <laughs> Because he's an interesting person. Yeah, having fun is fun. Well, there is, um, I don't know, there's a lot of stuff we're going to try to cover. We've been, he, Troy showed up at the shop at, I don't know, like 1 o'clock today, something like that. It was like 1.30. It's yeah. now 9 o'clock at night. Uh, we've had two meals. Uh, there may have been libations. And there is a lot of stuff that we want to cover. So what we thought we might do is kind of launch in we have a couple of fun questions for troy that i want him to answer that gives you some idea of like where he's coming from so what's your background in history before shram and then we can get like your shram story so i pretty much owe everything i've done to my dad who uh growing up always uh made it his top priority that we had the best bike possible. So we moved all over because of the military and government. And no matter where we lived, we always ended up with the best bikes of the day. That was his priority. So bikes were a part of my life from the earliest times. My dad was a, a bike nut, you know, in the seventies, he had like the sick Avocet shoes, like just the coolest gear that you look at it now and you're like, oh man, that's bananas. So always had the best gear. And then going to university, I thought to myself, oh man, I time to bu- you know buckle up and get a real job. And so I, I worked in the bike business for a bit and then really settled down and got a, a you know, what we would call air quote real job. And uh, I did that for about two and a half years and realized that I had really screwed up. What was your real job? I worked for a pharmaceutical company developing uh, drugs for HIV positive patients. And uh, as a, as a uh, uh, I guess you could say a chemical operator, since uh, I didn't finish my chemistry degree. Um, speaking of my father, we, we got an argument shortly before graduation where he told me that I wouldn't be anything without that degree. And so I was like, Oh yeah, well, screw you. I quit, but it didn't stop me from getting a job. So I, I did that for a couple of years and really started to hate it. And, uh, went back to being a bike mechanic. Uh, it was important to me to, to be the best I could be. And so I went to school uh, so in like 1994, I went to BBI and UBI and had a little internship with Calvin Jones, now at Park Tool. Um, still one of the biggest influences in my mechanical career. Uh, I speak to him 
monthly. And uh, from there, just elbowed my way in and took every opportunity that was pre- uh, presented to me. Elbow or knife? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but was it like elbow, elbow like tinker style or like like? It, 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 there might have been throwing elbows in there, uh, you know, old school XC style. You know, um, so there were some smaller uh, programs, some smaller teams, but the biggest break really was going to work for Cannondale which in the late 90s uh, really was one of the premier uh, made in USA bicycle brands. Uh, some of the most powerful racing programs out there, thinking about Sobe, thinking about Volvo Cannondale, thinking about Seiko on the road. And it was a tremendous opportunity to really get in on the ground level of a huge program. Uh, and then uh, had various roles, uh, mechanic, demo, marketing, all types of things, uh, but typically outdoors and typically in the field on uh, nearly every continent. And uh, in 2012, uh, made the transition to SRAM. So when you were a mechanic with Cannondale, what was, and you might have already answered this question earlier off air, what was the best rider temper tantrum that you ever saw? Well, there's no need to embarrass anybody, but uh, let's you just... You don't have to name names. You can just give situations. Even, but, you let, know, let, sometimes, let, sometimes, though, like if someone has a hero and then they hear about that temper tantrum, it... Yeah, I don't want to mention any names, of course, but, you know, when you're a professional athlete, uh, your body is your job and you're doing 100%. Uh, you're giving everything that's possible. And if that means throwing an elbow here and taking a punch there, then maybe that's what happens. <laughs> and if it goes down on camera in front of the news crew at the finish line, then maybe that happens too. Uh, but you know, uh, the guys and gals that are racing their bikes for a living are, are giving everything, you know, those of us that just are, have a job and we go to work, we're, we're not sacrificing the body, uh, but a professional athlete does. And, uh, that's a, that's a really hard job to have. Any bike throwing? Oh, yeah. Bike tosses are part of it. Yeah, many a bike toss, I'm sure. Who has the best bike toss? Did, uh, maybe another way to word that is, did someone ever have a, let's call it, consistency of bike throws that you had to be like, look, if you keep throwing your shit, I'm not going to keep working on it. <laughs> um, let, let, let's just, uh, we'll keep it civil and we'll say that... Uh, what happened in the nineties stayed in the nineties. And as we've uh, progressed into uh, plastic bikes from aluminum bikes, uh, they don't get thrown as much cause they're getting more expensive to replace. All right. Fine. Fine. You can tell us later. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you were, we fast forwarded to 2012, which for those of you that can't do math, that's seven years ago. Um, yeet wasn't a thing yet. Uh, and we, you started with SRAM. What were you doing with SRAM, and what was your initial role, and how did that transition to today? Uh, so I'm, I'm still in the same role and uh, hired as a – well, my business card says technical ambassador, and that's, that's a pretty vanilla term. Uh, but my role is to uh, educate mechanics uh, globally. So 
We educate mechanics in North America, South America, and in Europe. Um, occasionally we'll break out into other continents, but, uh, my primary role is the education of shop mechanics, uh, distributor mechanics, uh, OE bike manufacturer mechanics and, uh, team mechanics outside of that. Uh, basically we go wherever we're needed. So if that's uh, a world cup, a crankworks, um, a U.S. national, uh, wherever we get called to, uh, we'll head out there when we're not teaching. So do you teach on the other con you, you go and like basically teach the stew class that Matt and I went to, do you go and teach that other places? Uh, exactly. So we, uh, we do a lot in South America, uh, 11 different countries there. Um, we have official SRAM programs in Germany, France, the Netherlands, Australia, Taiwan, and in the U.S. at like a SRAM location where they teach to. Um, and then we'll take it on the road uh, for South America and for some other places. Um, for example, my counterpart in Australia – uh, who runs Stu Australia will cover uh, South Africa um, just because it's they're the closest ones. Um, but for South America, we have 11 different distributors down there in, in 11 different countries. And so we'll go down there and service those markets. All right. So, and if this is a little odd, Andrew and I are sharing a microphone. We just have two. We're uh, poor people. We only have two microphones. Um, with that, what is one of the biggest, let's say, biggest few hurdles or like stumbling blocks that in your tenure at SRAM that you've helped work through? We know what one of them is, which is pretty obvious, but let's see if I can guide you to talking about some others. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's no secret that uh, SRAM has had struggles with breaks. Um, you know, it turns out that making breaks is hard. And uh, and as you guys know, I don't really like to call them breaks. They're safety equipment, and it kind of takes on a different meaning when you're dealing with people's safety. And so making breaks is hard. It's hard for everybody. It's hard for Shimano. It's hard for Magura. It's hard for us. Uh, there's a, so much more involved than just cranking out some bike parts. Uh, and so, you know, in the formerly Avid product, we had some challenges and moving into the SRAM product, we've got challenges. The product we're turning out now is is the best we've ever made. Um, it's outstanding products. But some of the other things we've had to deal with is we kind of, our team, uh, there's seven of us on the team that I'm a member of, we kind of act like smoke jumpers. And so when we're not teaching, uh, if we have to go replace some uh, castings on a, on a lyric, you know, we'll fly somewhere and we'll do all that work. Or if we have to go to an OE and change, uh, parts out, we'll, uh, we'll do that too. Like lots of parts in it. Yeah. It, it could be, it could be thousands. It could be tens of thousands. It could be 40,000. It could be seven. Um, you know, thinking back to the, the hydro R recall, uh, in 2013, uh, you know, that was a really tough situation for us because we had to recall 38,000 breaks. Um, and we only had, um, something like six failures, you know, and only two of those were in the public, but we have to be a responsible company. And as a manufacturer of safety equipment, you have to be responsible. Uh, 
But I'm really proud of the work that we did. And one thing I'm proudest of is the founder of SRAM, Stan Day, showed up to the Boulder Cyclocross U.S. National Championship race where we had to swap out a lot of those hydro R brakes for customers. And he stood at the entrance to the race truck and apologized to every single consumer that walked in the door. He said, hey, it's my company. I'm the bottom line. I'm really sorry. We'll take care of it. And to Stan's credit, he did. Um, you know, I felt like we handled that one really well. Uh, again, it to simplify it, making brakes is hard. Um, making bike parts is hard. And being a manufacturer is hard, especially for SRAM, being the new company. We're 32 years old, but we're still the new company. And, you know, that's something that we have to think about is when we entered the market, Campy and Shimano and Magura had already been doing it for 60 plus years. So a lot of the, a lot of the, you know, hard part of manufacturing, figuring out how to make stuff that already been through those hurdles. So we're still kind of the new kids on the block, but I think we're doing a good job these days. Yeah, you're killing it. Okay. So I have a serious break question and you can give me, I know you'll either give me a no or there's nothing we're not working on. But my dream break is a flat mount SRAM. Why flat mount? Because it's road stuff. And road is flat mount, you old fucking curmudgeon. <laughs> so fuck you. Road is flat mount and everything drop bar is flat mount, including the new salsa cutthroat. So step off your high horse because if it has a drop bar, it has a flat mount if it's made in 2020 or better. Sorry, Karen. So with that said, back to my question of if I had my perfect item it would be a shram bb9 bb10 i don't know what we would name it but it would be mechanical a mechanical pad. elixir pad flat mount brake so so basically like a bb7 sl in a flat mount casting but with the new but with like an elixir or level tlm pad like a new larger pad as well so move away from the old, like, juicy pad. Give me a pad that's easy to replace and give me a, oh, a flat hole, mount. That spring thing in the middle of it. With a, yeah, where you don't have to, like, jam them in. You get, like, pen closure and stuff. Well, I mean, it's true. There's nothing we're not working on, but I don't see that in the near future. <sighs> okay, then the other one is... I was going to call it a drop bar GX group. There's nothing we're not working on. Boom. You heard it here. <laughs> no, I, I, with Axis, the sky is the limit. Uh, with Well, your wallet's kind of the limit with Axis. <laughs> sure. But you know what? Um, honestly, we we're, we got to be unapologetic. Nice things cost money. And it's expensive to make. We own our own factories. We make all of that stuff. We make everything but the battery. We make we make all the little bits inside, the brain, the computers, the chips. We make everything ourselves. And that stuff takes a ton of R&D and a ton of testing. Uh, we make everything but the battery. And it is really nice. I mean, going back to mechanical from Axis, you feel like you're in the Stone Ages, <laughs> You know, I mean, Axis is incredible. And the data acquisition that's possible now with Axis is off the chart. 
I mean, now you can look at your ride and you can say, yeah, I rode this map over this terrain with this topographic expression at these watts, at this tire pressure, at this shock pressure, with this much airtime on my bike, shredding the gnar, at this heart rate, and all of those layers overlay. Then you can overlay, I was in this gear for this long, this gear for that long, and you can overlay all of those things. And so with the data acquisition and the telemetry that is capable now and in the near future, you're going to be in total control of your ride. You know, I mean, the priority is still to go out there and have fun, but you know, what we had to do 20, 30 years ago on the race courses where you would have to take a lap with this tire, then take a lap with that tire and take a lap at this pressure and take a lap with that gear and then do a run with this gear and do all that stuff analog. Now the equipment tells you all that stuff. It's, it's truly phenomenal. I don't disagree that Axis is awesome and worth all of the money, but I would say that GX 12 speed has opened up new, like that allows people who normally wouldn't get a nice carbon mountain bike. Like it's, it works well enough. You can put it on a nice carbon mountain bike and it's, I mean, it's just really nice. I'd say out of even though Axis is like the cutting edge, like of the of shifting, GX twelve speed has I think changed bikes in the industry. Like as far as like a price point that's affordable for more people, uh, you know, more than Axis has probably affected anything. Sure, you know, first and foremost, SRAM loves innovation. We. We crave innovation. We love new products. We like dropping new products. We're always working on new products, probably to a fault. Maybe some products came out a little bit too early, but we love innovation. But the benefit of that is what we could say is trickle down. And and you see that when the red force, uh, red becomes force rather, and then force becomes something else or XX becomes XO and then XO becomes GX and GX becomes NX and NX becomes SX. The other side of the coin is it's great on the OE bikes, like you mentioned, but now you have a tune up in a box. And so for the bike shop mechanic, looking at a bike that is, you know, what the kids call a clap wagon (laughs) for, for what it would cost or less than what it would cost to make that bike run. Okay. You can install a GX Grupo. Yeah. I mean, I, we've what, done that a lot. Like, it, it's we, like, oh, you have a worn out double or triple drivetrain of some sort. We could replace it, or you could pay $50 more and we can replace it with new 12 speed. Absolutely. And with the NX cassette, the NX cassette was like the the savior of 2.6. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if somebody rolls in with a 2.6 bike, the NX cassette is the savior of the 26 inch wheel because now they can have 12 speed. They can have a GX Grupo and an NX cassette. And it's, what is that? $550 plus labor. Uh, depending on the market. I mean, I think in my market, you 550 would probably get you out the door with tax. Okay. Yeah. Well, a lot of times you can use the, the crank. If it's a 104 BCD crank, you're just taking all the chain rings off and putting a, yeah, and oh, you're, but you just, you but just you're, talk to no microphone. Sorry. 
but you're but you're spending less time working on the bike because you're just going to strip all that stuff off and throw it in the recycle bin and bolt on all this new stuff, you know, check your high limit, check your low limit, check your chain length, and then connect a cable and send it. And I think a big thing to argue there is that's not laziness on the bike shop. It's actually the, okay, well, this is three by nine. Oh God, where do I actually find quality shifting three by nine chain rings or, Maybe, heaven forbid, you look at the wall, and if it's a SRAM product, there's still a 3 by 10 chain rings available, but the 10-speed chain ring, the big ring is like $96. Like, it's outstanding because it's they only have like a premium pinned, like shift ramp pinned chain ring that's available still, and it's like really expensive. And you're like, duh, you know, I could... And it's not the laziness of the mechanic. It's the honest, like, yeah, you, you have a derailleur that's done a lot of trail maintenance you have a shifter that's been crashed seven times like why don't we just refresh it for the same amount of money so i just wanted to throw that in so people are like oh lazy bike mechanic doesn't want to work on the three by nine no i'm tired of like taking look three by nine was super easy to work on like you could kind of do anything to it and it still shifts because it's nine speed well yeah i mean you had you you had a chain that was 6.6 millimeters wide now the chains are sub six millimeters wide so all of that leeway, which was Bye. A, which was beautiful with friction shifters, because if it didn't if it didn't shift just right, you would just wiggle it into place, right? Yeah. But you know, speaking about the the mechanics, what's what's important to know is that the customer knows everything that we know. The, they have the internet, and so information is not necessarily power anymore. We have to transition our role as mechanics, and we have to be a guide. Um, we have to be an advisor and we have to be honest with people because everybody's, everybody's going to call you on your bullshit and everybody has the internet and everybody has, uh, online or, you know, what we used to call mail order, but now they can buy online. They all have that. And so you have to change your role. It, it can't be, you know, is this my size? Well, it's in stock. Like that's not going to fly anymore. You have to be honest. You have to be on your game. You have to know your shit. You have to be an advisor. You have to be a guide and be part of your community. Then the people will come in and spend their money. You know, it's otherwise they're just going to buy something online uh, and and roll with it. You know, for the for the bike shop mechanics to survive, it's it's not about are they lazy because they don't want to work on you know three by nine. It's that you get way more gear ratios with a one by twelve, and you lose a pound off the bike and you're doing the customer a favor. You're helping them. You're helping them love riding their bike. They're going to ride their bike more. They're going to be a, more of a customer. You're, you're doing an all around good service. Additionally, yes, it takes less time to work on stuff these days, but remember the customer is paying you for the 20 years it took you to get that good at your job. Not because you did it in 20 minutes. That's what you have to remember. Oh yeah. Before we get into the time aspect of it, the thing to, to also talk about is like our job is bicycles, but a lot of people's job is to sit at a computer. And when they sit at their computer, one of their tabs is that new bike part they want. So oftentimes I feel like customers know more about a product than I do because they've done 15 or 20 hours of MTBR, pink bike, bike rumor, vital, mountain bike yum yum single track sampler you name it they've listened to our douchebags on mountain bike radio <laughs> <Those douchebags 
<laughs> they've done all of this work and they come in and they're almost just trying to validate where they're going to make their purchase. And you might still be able to influence that if you're like, yeah, well, I've seen with this component this problem, but if we get this component, we can avoid that. But for the most part, they're often more educated because they've done more screen time on it than I have. Yeah, and that's where it's going to come down to your experience and you know the the effort that you're going to put out for that sale and the effort that you're going to put into working on their bikes. You know, it's tough to be a bike shop these days. There is a it's a whole different dynamic with the internet and with the sheer volume of bike shops. I mean, when I left the bike shop today at Absolute, I didn't even notice, but there was one across the street. Yeah. Like there's a bike shop across the street. And then there's one just down the block from just there. down the block. And then you have one just over the pass in Buena Vista. And it's incredible the sheer volume of bike shops there are now. So you you really you're competing for the same customer. And when you do have a customer, you have to try and get them to keep spending their money every year. And you sold them a baller bike last year. And then you have to convince them to buy a new baller bike this year. Or, to, or just take care of the bike they bought last year. Right. But, I mean, if nobody buys new bikes, then, then you're not selling bikes. So it's hard. And, and you know, I, I can appreciate how hard it is. And I can tell you that SRAM understands how hard it is. Yeah. You guys have always had very good service. It's appreciated by bike shops. It's probably taken advantage of by some bike shops also. Making bike parts is hard. Making bike parts is hard. That's all I got to say. Okay, so you, you, the the royal you, as in the SRAM you, have made a lot of bike parts. And you guys, look at this transition. You guys were struggling with a certain bike park, a bike part, not bike park. Bike park is where you ride them. Bike parts is what you ride at the bike park. Um how did the universal derailleur hanger come to be? What does it do? Why is it better? And answer to the pink bike commenter of SRAM can't make a derailleur, so now they have to make a hanger that's a Band-Aid for their derailleur. Go. What do you mean that you can't make a derailleur? If you, if you read that? the pink bike comments. I, I don't look at pink bike. That, look, let's just, I, this, is, this is two things about me. I don't look at pink bike. I don't listen to podcasts. <laughs> But I seriously read after the UDH was released, which is Universal Derailleur Hanger, that people were like, oh, if SRAM could only make a derailleur, they wouldn't have to go through all these hoops to make a bike that shifted. And I'm just like, Jesus. Well, I can say that I don't know what, what Troy's experience is, is, but anytime I adjust, I'd say out of all of the bikes that I adjust a 12-speed SRAM derailleur on, uh, I'd say probably 75% of them, and I'm talking about like bikes that are from like, you know, people visiting from the front range, like not ones that we assembled in the shop because we have one of these on each bench is the little B-gap tool. And even if you don't do it exactly how the instructions say and like sag the bike to use it, it still works pretty damn well. If you just take the five seconds it takes to use it it can really change your shifting but i i'm i, I think you need to send some of those to the front range and just kind of you know like open doors of bike shops and throw handfuls of them on the floor and just just out. toss in grenade bags full of uh of b-gap tools yeah. one of my favorites and this was like two years ago i had a customer 
praising how their local bike sh- their their bike wasn't shifting at all. And the guy was standing there telling me how much his local bike shop was amazing. And then I was like, uh-huh, 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 cool, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. And I'm like, hey, $2 for a cable okay? And the guy was like, why does it need a new cable? I just had a cable put in by those guys. And I'm like, well, there's a little tunnel. Like, is there a technical ner- name for the little, like, 90-degree tunnel on the back of the derailleur? The love tunnel? It's called the Rollamajig. Well, no, after the Rollamajig, there's like a little highway that it goes in. Yeah, it's got to go around well, the So it goes through the Rollamajig, yeah. and then it goes over a fin and goes okay. through a little groove to your pinch bolt. Okay, so it's just a fin and groove. It went Rollamajig, and, and then it went on the roof of the tunnel rather than in the tunnel <laughs> of the fin. Not very Swiss. And they were like, um, sure. So, I mean, everyone can make mistakes is where I'm going. So, again, I'll, I'll, I'm always going to start out by saying that manufacturing is hard. Making stuff is hard. Making bike parts is hard. Making safety equipment is hard. And there's way more that goes into it than the public will ever see. Um, you know, as for comments on Pink Bike, you know, that's great. Bring them on it just pushes us to do better. And I'm envious if you have so much time in your life (laughs) that you can just sit there on pink bike and say what you want. You know, that's, that's fantastic. But coming back to the UDH, um, UDH is the universal derailleur hanger. And what that comes down to is, you know, the, the people on pink bike would say, I can't get my bike to shift. And, the bike shop mechanic has to think about what is in their control at that time. SRAM can control the cassette. SRAM can control the chain. SRAM can control the rear derailleur. SRAM can control the mechanical shifter. And we can control the cable that's going through all that. What we can't control is the 12 millimeters from the 10 cog to the back of the B plate. And that could be bent. The frame could be bent something could be off. If that's out of whack, then the whole system is out of whack, uh, to put it in a, you know, a non-technical term. Uh, so the UDH was born in an effort to solve the problem of what is out of our control. And so we made this little widget is pretty much what it is. It's a little widget. It's pretty technical. It keeps the chain from falling off. Uh, if it does derail, it'll go back onto the 10 cog. It'll get out of the way. Uh, it'll rotate backwards if you crash. You know, it's a fancy little $15 nugget of aluminum. Um, but ultimately, what this means for a bike shop is several things. One, it's a better derailleur hanger. It's stout. It keeps the chain from grinding on the frame. Uh, it's designed to work with not just SRAM derailleurs, but with Shimano as well. Uh, and others. It's not proprietary. Additionally, it's open source. So we just told anybody, here's the schematics. If you want it, you can use it. Um, It's already shipping on major OE products. So your 2020 bikes that are coming out will have it. And it's $15. And anybody can get one. So instead of having 300 plus hangers, now we're just going to have this one, and we know it's going to work. 
you know, of course, no, it's not backwards compatible. The frame has to be meant to, to receive it like any hanger. But moving forward, we're not changing a standard. We're not trying to change the way we do things to make it hard for other people. Like I said, we open sourced it. We're just trying to get better. And so, you know, for the haters on Pinkbike and other places where they're saying, oh, you know, you've changed the standard again. Now we have another standard. It's that's one way to say it. One other way to say it is we're innovating and we're making something better. We're continuously improving. And ultimately, that's our goal. We just want to do it better. We we have no problem admitting to our mistakes. Um, I'm quite open about the things that we have, you know, done poorly. But we always get better. And to me, that's a win. If you can continuously innovate and make new product and move the needle forward, then we're in a good place. I think that the UDH uh, will be ubiquitous within about two to three years. Do you know what manufacturers are on board with that? Like where can, where we're going to see that in the future? Uh, are you allowed to say? Sure. I, I don't have the, the list off the top of my head. I can tell you that Trek bikes are already shipping with it. Sweet. And for those of you out there that right now are like screaming at your, whatever you're listening to this on, but my bike doesn't have that, but it's still got to have a hanger for my bike. I think the difference though is if you walk into a shop that sells brand X, brand Y, and brand Z, if one of those uses UDH and you're riding brand P, well, if they have a UDH hanger that fits one of their bikes, it also fits your brand P bike. So it reduces that, let me find a Trek dealer. It's more, let me find a bike shop that might have a UDH. And I think that's the way to look at it. And if someone's like, well, my 2004 uh, Kona Stinky, nerds not going to UDH fit that well, shut up. You know, like the old Stinky hanger, good luck if Kona still makes it. You know, like, I, I think I think that was a solid hanger. Solid dropout. I don't think it had a replaceable hanger. And with Troy, I don't know if this is facetious or not. No, I'm serious. I don't think it was a replaceable hanger. I think that was a solid dropout. I don't know. Maybe it was the stinky deluxe or the king (laughs) or the mini mula. You picked the one bike. (laughs) Uh, So what's important to know about UDH is what's important to know about UDH is two things. One, um, we only make one. So it's one shape, one size. And so that's why only new bikes will have it because they're engineering the frame for this UDH. Um, and two, it's 15 bucks and it's everywhere. And, and that's, that's anybody- great because a lot of through axle hangers, like modern hangers are like 30 bucks, like 25 to 30, you know, so it's, it's just, it's cheap. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, it's inexpensive. It's easy to get. It's open source, so anybody can use it. We're not saying, oh, this is proprietary. We want to make sure that everybody can have access to just trying to make it better. Uh, that's It's super important. It's a small business. We're all in it together. All right, so that's new stuff with SRAM. Old stuff with SRAM. I want you to hit us with some Ed Najaletti stories. So uh, for the listening audience that doesn't know who Ed Najoletti is, um, Ed Najoletti is a bike industry royalty. 
uh, and has has been on the circuit for about the last 30 plus years. Uh, and I'll just, I'll just give you some quick nuggets about Ed. Um, Ed started at SRAM in the, uh, early to mid nineties, uh, soon after the formation of the company. Um, he was working uh, at a bike shop in Chicago at the time. Um, and also was, uh, driving the Camp Ignolo bubble top van around, uh, Chicago. Um, Ed was a staple of the Chicago bike scene for years. Um, and when, uh, the guys at SRAM, uh, there was about six or seven guys that when the company started were there and they walked into uh, the bike shop that Ed was at and they said, Hey, this is our new grip shift. We'd like you to check it out and tell us what you think. And Ed being, oh, let's just say opinionated, uh, Ed took the grip shift threw it on the floor and it broke. And he was like, who makes bike parts out of plastic? That's bullshit. Get out of here. Beat it. And so the SRAM guys thanked Ed for his time and they left. Uh, (laughs) So later that night, 25 years later, ain't shit changed. (laughs) So later that night, Ed picks up the shifter, wraps a piece of tape around it, and it worked. And he said, you know, there's only five pieces to this thing, and you can fix it in the field with tape. That's amazing that Ed figured how to, up, out how to put one of those back together, because if you've ever taken an old grip shift shifter apart, but, sometimes parts fly out, and you're like, oh, fuck, how did yeah. this go in there? Yeah, the, the he, x-ray leaf spring, if that went flying, you're done. But Ed put it back together with a piece of tape, and what... Ed was smart enough to realize, because remember, this script shifter was a road shifter, not a mountain shifter. It wasn't that we didn't have it as a mountain shifter until Gary Fisher himself asked for it. You know, he said, hey, instead of on a, on a curly bar, what if we put it on a flat bar? So this was a road shifter, and Ed was working neutral support for crits and for race teams. Uh, and remember that prior prior to those days, Ed was the 7-Eleven team mechanic, uh, you know, a huge team. So... Ed's point of view on everything was, is this serviceable in the field, right? So, yeah, maybe sometimes his delivery is a little uh, aggressive, but that was a that was a younger, more aggressive Ed. He's, he's older and gentler now. So the next day, uh, he phones up the boys at SRAM, and he's like, hey, I was able to fix that thing and make it work. Uh, and they offered him a job. And so... <laughs> Uh, you mean that's all you have to do in the bike industry to get a job for like a career job is just break some of their shit and then fix it? Well, I don't know if it would fly these days, but um, next time a rep brings some new stuff in the shop, I'm just going to just throw it on the concrete floor and be like, that's bullshit. <laughs> you know, Ed. Um, so after that, Ed was a part of a program called the SWAT team. And that was a. Um, Hold on, hold on, hold on. Doesn't Specialized have SWAT as a trademark? Be careful. <laughs> uh, so SWAT um, was like service, warranty, and training, or it was an acronym for something like that. Um, I'm sure Ed will correct me. Uh, but Ed was part of the SWAT team in the 90s uh, at SRAM, and what they would do is they basically would roll around with cases of parts and pretty much started the uh, – the neutral service uh, phenomenon that you see now 
uh, across the world where, you know, bike manufacturers have neutral support. And so Ed would go to races, he would go to bike shops, and if they had a problem with a SRAM product, he would just simply swap it out, kind of like a dealer service in the field. Uh, and so Ed's territory was all of New England and Eastern Canada, and he serviced that market for a long time uh, before uh, before our team was formed. He threw that shit on the ground and got a job. That's the takeaway. He just spiked it into the ground, and then later, didn't he two, apologize? Oh, no, 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 no. Two great things happened. One, he called a bike company, and someone answered the phone. <laughs> and two, <laughs> they they hadn't invented hold music yet. And two, he got a job at a bike company. Like he, who did he ask for a job, or did they offer him a job? They offered him a job. They called him. Holy man. I got to try that. I'm, I'm just going to have to start breaking stuff and then, you know, taping it back together and being like, hey, look, I fixed it. Can I have a job? Yeah. I mean, Ed can pull that off. I don't know if I can. I don't know if you can, but Ed pulled it off. So for those of you out there, if Ed ever calls you, because I've only had the luxury of one phone call with Ed, and I hope that I talk to Ed more in the future, and that's not joking at all. He's very interesting to talk with because he's very smart and very experienced, but it's a test. Like, if Ed has you on the phone, he doesn't call you just to, like, ask you how the weather is. Like, I felt as if I was being tested, like... It's almost like he would refer to his notes and lead me over here and then ask me a question about this thing. And then like a little bit later, he'd reel me in and lead me over here and ask me a question about that thing. No, you you totally nailed it. Um, Ed is very technically savvy and he knows this stuff and he knows it better than most people. And so when he calls and he's trying to find out some information about a product that you're having trouble with, he wants to make sure that you're not bullshitting him. He wants to make sure that you're not the problem. Absolutely. And, and if you are, he will tell you. Yeah, that was a... I had a very simple problem that I was getting some pushback from dealer service on. And through the grapevine for not the right reasons, Ed called me. Um, I let someone at a manufacturer know, or a, sorry, a, a, like an OE supplier know you know like a comp bike company know that some of the SRAM products they were sending had this issue and maybe they could head it off at the pass and give feedback to SRAM and Ed called me and was like I was told that you thought you didn't have any power with us let's get to the bottom of this problem and I'm like oh, that's not what I meant but okay let's go and we started talking and we started solving those problems and he's like well what have you seen it on I'm like this 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 and he's like Okay, do you have serial numbers? And I'm like, no, Ed. The guys at DSD told me that's not a problem, even though I've had to get like a few shipped out. So I just sat down with Loctite and went through every bike on the floor. And I didn't note which ones had loose and which ones had tight. I just found like kind of a running problem and maybe they could be different in the future. And he was like, that's some good information. More is always better. I'm like, yes, Ed, I'm sorry. <laughs> I immediately felt like he said, I'm not, he didn't say it, but he could have said, well, I'm not mad, but I'm a little disappointed. Yeah, he's uh, he's slightly annoyed. <laughs> you know, it's, um, Ed truly has 
SRAM's best interest and the bike industry's best interest in mind and at heart at all times. Uh, you won't find a more passionate person uh, in the industry, nor someone more with more historical knowledge uh, of the industry. Uh, I'll put it in perspective. When Ed goes on vacation, he goes to Europe to watch the six-day track races, or he goes to Italy to watch cyclocross racing, or he'll go to Flanders to watch the Tour of Flanders. Uh, that's his passion, and every waking moment is cycling. Uh, and you're welcome to test him because he'll win every time. I'll know like one little obscure BMX nugget, and he'll be like, yeah, but that company went out of business in 97, and I'll be like, ah! <laughs> um. So maybe to, I mean, if you have anything, you're welcome to talk about it. But if you'd like to wrap things up on a positive note, I have something I think you'd like to talk about. Sure. So you talk about Ed having the best interest of, let's just call it cycling in general at heart and, you know, at the forethought of everything that he's doing. Something that you mentioned off air is how the, you won't find a, more passionate and harder working bike mechanic than those you'll find in South America in all of your travels. What's some of the most like ingenious or maybe like heartwarming feats of redneckery hackery fixery that you've seen? Like what's the, you know, getting by with little to nothing and making things work in a way that amazes you type stuff that you've seen. Yeah. You said, uh, if you, if they had an avocado and a Red Bull can, yeah, you know, if they don't have the right tool and the right part, they're like, yeah, no problemo, man. We'll just, uh, I got a Red Bull can and an avocado. I'll fix it. And, and you know, that's a painting it with a pretty broad stroke. But um, I have been, it's been my good fortune uh, to be able to work in uh, 11 or 12 countries down in South America. And one thing is extremely common across all of those and that is the bike shop mechanics and the race techs and the distributor techs are extremely passionate about cycling. Uh, they, it's their life. They live it. They love it. They know every bit of information. They're all like little junior Ed Nagelettis. And because it's South America, which is, uh, it's pretty much the final frontier. It's kind of the last place bike companies go. And so, they're still uh they're still excited about Reba. You know, they're still excited about the new Reba. Uh full suspension doesn't really exist. Um they have downhill some places, they have the EWS in some places, but it's pretty much hardtail party. Little shout out to my friend Steve. Uh it's pretty much hardtail party everywhere. Um and short travel forks. And so they that's all they're going to work on they have very basic tools probably hardware store style tools and if they have some park tools that's because they know somebody that sells park tools in their small country uh but they can take care of anything they can fix anything they can get you on the road um it may not be pretty it may not be appropriate it may not be safe but they can get it done and really for me Ultimately, what it represents is that um, bike shop mechanics, no matter where they are in the world, can get the job done. Uh, they know what it takes to get it done, 
and they can get the people out the door. And I think that's a common thread that all of us have all around the world. Uh, and it comes down to really one trait and that's attention to detail. And that's the difference between a bike shop mechanic, um, and somebody that doesn't know what they're doing is attention to detail. If, if you don't know what's going on, if you don't know how to fix it, if you don't know what's going to happen down the road, bad things can happen. Um, all those, all those guys down in South America, all they care about is solving a problem. And I think that's pretty universal for, uh, for bicycle mechanics. And so I really love going down there. Uh, I just got back, uh, from Costa Rica where we're building an education center, uh, for SRAM. I'm going back here in a couple of weeks in, in middle of January to, uh, finish kitting out the education zone there. Um, in Costa Rica, the distributor for SRAM there is taking on El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, uh, Nicaragua, and parts of Panama. And uh, so they're bringing in mechanics and training all of those people. Uh, so they're really embracing education. They take every opportunity they can to take advantage of any education. Uh, but it really is the final frontier down there. So it, you have to figure out how to make do and... It's just a, it's a spirit that I, I really love. Well, awesome. That's, that's really cool to hear. So like maybe the takeaway is like the home mechanic in America will go to the store and buy a new derailleur hanger, put it on, but not check the limit screws. And someone in Costa Rica might make you a new hanger out of something weird and sketchy, but they're going to set the limit screws and align it before they send you on your way. Absolutely. They are outstanding mechanics. Uh, they're well-trained. They're passionate about being able to do the job correctly. Uh, they're passionate about having the right tools when they can get them. Uh, you know, one thing that, that we do, we're, you know, we're fortunate to live in a first world country. Uh, whenever we go down there, we always take tools with us. Uh, and nothing, nothing makes those guys happier, uh, than getting some fresh tools, um, that they didn't have to make themselves out of an old sign or something. Um, and, you know, it's similar in Africa. You have to remember that it's not that the people aren't capable and it's not that the people can't do it. They just don't have the access. You know, having the access is critical and things that we really take for granted here in, in you know, the U.S. and Canada and North America is that you can get anything you want next day, 24 hours. And when you have to when you live without that, you really have to figure out how to get shit done. Right. Not everyone has a pocket computer that will pull up a service manual PDF and then order and deliver any parts tomorrow, parts and tools they need to make that work. Yeah. I, you know, unfortunately, because of logistics and duties and tariffs and governments and changing governments and coups pirates. and pirates and who knows what's going on. Kangaroos. Kang little fuckers. Ugh. <laughs> They, uh, you know, they might order something and it's, uh, not unusual to wait months, not days or weeks, but months, four months, maybe it just takes time to get stuff there. We, uh, we wanted to do some computer training for how they do warranty for SRAM and we shipped down a bunch of computers. They never made it through customs. So there's a bunch of, uh, Colombian customs agents that have fresh computers because they just said, nope, you're not going to get these today. Uh, in Peru, uh, no telling what can happen to your equipment in Peru. I mean, an incredible country, but 
some of our stuff just never, ever made it. Um, you know, there was a period in Ecuador where the government felt that they should be able to make everything within the borders of their country. They don't need outside influence or outside products. And so they shut down all imports of bike frames. And so all the s- distributors for SRAM, Shimano, and anybody, they had lots of parts, but no bikes to hang them on because the the administration there for a short time felt that they should just make their own bikes. And they they didn't. And then they got a new government and they said, yeah, that's crazy. Let's Let's start bringing in some bicycle frames. You know, or you have challenges in Brazil where they have 100% duty. So if something costs $100, in Brazil it costs $200. So whatever, whatever you want, double the price, and that's what it costs there. But it's a huge market, you know, or even some of the smaller countries like uh, Uruguay and Paraguay, um, you know, small blips on the map, but huge passion. Huge passion for the sport, huge passion for being the best mechanics they can be. Well, awesome. Is there anything else you want to cover or share with the world before you make the mini truck journey? Oh, for those of you that don't know, because you won't know, Troy and I are mini truck brethren. That's right. Eskimo brothers. We didn't get to do like a photo shoot with the two mini trucks. It got all dark and stuff, but we have very similar mini trucks. That's right. That's right. The mini trucks are where it's at. You do not need an F twelve fifty to to bring the mail. You can get around in a little hard body. And just so you know, Matt and Troy are both six foot two. <laughs> yeah, with lots of headroom in the mini truck. Something like that. Well, cool. Well, if you don't have anything to add, I think we can call this an evening. Anything, Bueller? Um. You know what? Put my I'm I'm on vacation, so uh, I'll put my SRAM hat on for just a moment, and I'll say, "Thanks for riding our parts. We really appreciate it, and we'll keep trying harder." That's what she said. <laughs> Until next time, have a good one, and just remember, Andrea's always going to be obscene. <laughs>